Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, we have a returning guest, back by popular demand, one of my favorite uh, guests, one of my favorite people, Janae. Welcome back to the show. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me again. Oh, I, I had to. Had to get you back. Uh, it was it was a priority. So glad you, you could come back. Um, and, uh, you know, usually I save promos to the end, but you have a podcast and uh, it's, it's just come back recently, hasn't it? Yes, we are back for season two. I have a podcast with my bestie called Bad Seminarians because we both met in seminary. And then we also kind of were of the opinion like, huh, these are, this is what people think that seminarians should be. And we don't think that we fit this. And so, yeah, we're in season two. We just released like episode six. So it's an interesting season because my bestie and co-host will be starting her doctoral program. So I have invited friends to guest co-host with me this season. But Christian Williams, my bestie, is still with me. So yes, Bad Seminarians, we are on all streaming platforms. Nice. Highly recommend it. Uh, Not only is it good content, but it's also just very entertaining. Um, So highly, highly recommend. You know, Janae, we met in Bible college, um, but I don't know too much about your life before then, other than a few things. Um, You know, I I asked this question to a lot of guests, but how did you relate to Christianity the first 18 years of your life? Ah, the first 18 years of my life. What a time to be alive, let me tell you. No bills, no responsibilities outside of getting good grades. Let me see. So for the first, oh, 13 years of my life. So so my household, my household, if you ask me, in my opinion, we, I grew up in a non-believing home, but I knew about God, but not much about him. My father was this deeply devout man from Tennessee and just had this Christian lineage behind him, but he stopped going to church. And I don't know what point in his life he did that. And my mother grew up Lutheran and she also stopped going to church, but they both had this history behind them. So I knew about God, but I didn't know much about God. Like I I knew enough to spell his name, knew that his son's name was Jesus. And that was about it. And then when I was about eight years old, the woman who would become my childhood best friend moved into the neighborhood and just so turned out her mother and my mother were former friends and coworkers who lost touch. Her father was a pastor. Her whole family was in church. And so she invited me and I started going to church with her. From about the age of eight until about 13. So church was a huge part of my life until I turned 13. And then I stopped going. And then when I turned 17, this same best friend invited me again to go to church with her. And it's a 
long story, but I did start going to church with her. And months later, I was saved. So I've been saved since I was 17 years old. Awesome. Uh, and feel free to ignore this question if, uh, you know, it's prying too much. But that, that gap in high school, was it intentional that you stopped going to church? Were you just kind of bored or were you disgusted or were you just, um, you know, exploring other ideas? What was going on there? You know, it's really hard to explain. I, I honestly don't know what it was, but the the best way to describe it is like a click. When I turned 13, I was just done. And I stopped going to church with my friend and her family. And honestly, I don't know why. There was there was no catalyst. There was nothing special. There was nothing of importance, great importance that happened. I just was done with it. And in between the ages of 13 and 17, there really was no exploration with Christianity, other religions, or anything like that. It was just for three and a half, four years of nonchalance when it came to Christianity and anything else. I just was uninterested. Gotcha. I I, I can't relate. I was the opposite in high school. I, I was a uh, full-on choir boy, but um, that's interesting. I didn't know that about you. What, so you saved at 17. What's the... Um, What's the biggest difference between, you know, that those first few years of faith and how you view your faith now? In those first few years, there was a lot of both innocence and exploration. Innocence because at 17 and depending on what kind of childhood you have and and things like that, there there is still so much innocence that that you experience. And that's how it was for me. And so God and everything else in my life was still very much this pure thing. I went to Bible study, choir rehearsal, all of those things. And it was such a huge part of my life. But then compared to now, I know more and I've been through more. I'm a grown woman now. Um, I'm a grown woman of 32 years old. And this, an episode that I just released for my podcast was on Negro spirituals and the book of Lamentations and just lament. And something that I had said in that episode is that as I was younger, in my younger years going to church and looking at the older Black saints, I would see them during prayer and during um, worship where they would be swaying and crying and singing. I would just look at them in bewilderment, wondering why they were crying. And I asked Sister Gwen, my spiritual mother, I said, well, what is this for? Why do you cry when you worship? And she and other older people would just say, keep on living. And I did that because what are my options, you know, but I kept on living And then I got some experience under my belt and I just, I started to know God in a way that I didn't when I was 17, because the innocence was still there. Whereas at 32, the innocence is not there anymore. And that's, that's a natural progression when you get older. That makes a lot of sense. Um, 
may I ask, you know, I know you went to the same college I did in Moody. That was uh, <laughs> predominantly white is an understatement. Um, w- was that true also of your church going experience outside of Moody, like before Moody? No, I went to an all black church until I went to Moody. So I experienced a lot of cultural shock in so many so many ways my my culture shock was multifaceted yeah i'm sure that's an understatement uh just wanted that detail because i'm wondering you know you're talking about innocence there's and and kind of i just know in white evangelicalism there's a lot of uh there is no lamenting really anything um the only things that are lamented i guess are like people who don't conform to their way of doing things they lament their souls i guess but there's not like a true like um i don't know i feel like that's not that's not as common so so would you say that plot point of was there a big plot point in a shift in your faith or was it um just gradual over time when it comes to my faith compared to being drowning that's the only way i can describe it drowning in white evangelicalism from 2013 to 2016 now just speaking of moody just speaking of moody compared to my upbringing in the black church i would say that the shift it did not take long for there to be a shift and i didn't notice that there was a shift Now, I know for me, when it came to my Christianity and how I viewed things, and you know how you don't see things at the time, of course, because hindsight is 2020. But as I look back at my first summer break, my first Christmas break, I look now and I realize how critical I became of my home church and the Black church in general because of being steeped in white supremacy and that and that was just four months so gradual a little bit but that shift was so quick is it's actually really scary how how quick that shift was yeah that's haunting (laughs) i got chills as you were talking because um yeah, I, I just grieve that for you because um, uh, it it's certainly not what I know your faith is about. Um, just hyper being hypercritical, especially of um, where you know your roots are. That's um, that's tragic, and you know it's it really is ingrained in in American culture. I feel like I mean, around ninety percent of American churches are still segregated, um, while some studies show they're as hot. That as high as like ninety five percent are racial racially homogenous, um, meaning at least eighty percent of the members of the church are the same race. Um, do you think this is an accident, or do you think this is intentional? Well, absolutely, it's intentional. But then you have to look at the intentionality historically, and then you have to look at the intentionality in its current form. Because there are there are two different reasons behind that. So when you look at the intentionality historically, then we have to remember 
looking at slavery, pre-Jim Crow, all of those things that Black people weren't even considered people. They were considered property, three-fifths, not even a whole person. So why would you have a church for Black people when you don't even believe that they have souls in the first place? However, historically, we do see that clergymen especially say, you know what, we can let, you know, Black people, they got souls now. They're still three-fifths, but they have souls. We don't have to explain it. Just believe what we say. They have souls now. And so instead of saying you're nothing, say that we will offer you salvation and the Lord will save your soul, but he will not save you from this current situation that you are in. I mean, why would you need to be saved from it? We saved you from your savage, hedonistic motherland. And so that that's intentional. That is intentional. But then you look at the intentionality between homogenous churches today and looking at the Black perspective, because that's where I'm coming from, the intentionality behind that is safety, emotional, physical, spiritual safety. And there's a level of comfort there. And you are known in a way in Black churches and in homogenous spaces that you won't necessarily be known or feel the or feel the need to be vulnerable enough to allow yourself to be known in primarily white homogenous spaces or mixed spaces. That's a really helpful breakdown um, that there's this so I don't know why. Sorry, I might get emotional a few times in this episode just because um, it's just difficult stuff. Um, <clears throat> so there's, yes, the historical tragic nature of all of this that um, white supremacy has been the main catalyst for. Um, and it was certainly in the church. And, you know, people can argue whether the church is the first mover or white supremacy is the first mover. It doesn't really matter. What happened was, was horrible. And you're right. It became uh, in churches like, wait a second, we should, you know, we can actually use our religion to control these people we're trying to control. Um, So we don't want to completely say they don't have souls anymore. Um, You know, and and let's stay on that history thing for a minute. Uh, Prior to the civil war, um, and for a good while after, segregation of churches was written in law. It wasn't just cultural. It, it was written down in law. Um, there was great concern about interracial marriage and reproduction. And we know that um, this pattern in the U.S. continued up at least until the civil rights era, if not past it. Um, and I, I believe that it breeds racist ideas when we separate ourselves. But... Um, you know, kind of maybe what you're talking about with safety, is there any logical reason for wanting to have elements of segregation in society or no? I think we have to, there's so many things that we must consider. First of all, when we look at white segregation, that is for the furtherance of racism, xenophobia, and all things evil. 
that is to preserve whiteness and white supremacy. That's the purpose of segregation on the white side. But when you look at Black people who, and I don't even want to use the word segregate because it's not the same thing. Segregation is based on hatred. But for Black people, it's nearly impossible for us to, for lack of a better word, separate ourselves because we are minorities. And so I have to be in your world as a white person, whereas you don't have to be in my world at all. And when we separate ourselves, it's a way to, it's like, you know how for introverts and extroverts as well, that when you've given so much in public spaces and then you have to come back and recharge, that's what homogenous spaces are in general to Black, Indigenous, people of color. It's a way to recharge because I've got to go back into this big, bad world that is not a huge fan of mine. And that's what, and that's the difference between the two because we don't, Black, Indigenous, people of color in general, we don't separate ourselves as a means to uphold white supremacy. We get away because it's exhausting being a white world. Whereas I can just be myself with people who look like me or people who don't look like me, but have shared mutual experiences based on the fact that we are minorities. 18 minutes in and there's already tears coming out of my eye. (laughs) Oh yeah. That well put. Um, it's just I, I'm just mad. I'm I'm I, that's what my tears are from is just anger at the um at the state of things um because I I that makes total sense to me um you know I can be as good a friend to you as I want to be um but you know I I'm a big fan of Malcolm X and a lot of what he talked about was like stop living in a white world be be yourself you know stop using white na- th- those kind of ideas and. It's very powerful, and I know it makes uh, many, many white people of all different um, creeds uncomfortable. Uh, tough luck. It's it's we don't get to uh, assume that homogeny uh, when it's done for the sake of safety, recharging, is somehow a bad thing. It, it seems entirely necessary to me. So so well put. Um, that's that's very helpful. Yeah, and I think also something that we have to look at and we have to consider historically when a bunch of white people got together, it was for nefarious reasons and whole communities were killed because of it. Looking at you, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and all these other communities that we can get into. And you must admit that, and even though some white people today this is not where their mind is going to go and they don't think that their mind is going here unconsciously excuse me unconsciously that's where their mind is going because when a bunch of white people get together it is to cause harm to black brown indigenous communities because historically when we do exactly what you tell us to do 
go away, get off your lands, do your own thing. And we do just that. And then people realize, oh my gosh, black communities can prosper without us. Then it's let's bring that down. We will gentrify this area. I mean, what's that part in New York called? The huge square. I can't even remember it. COVID brain. Let's call it Times Square. Yes, Times Square. I mean, it used to be an all-Black community called Seneca Village, where there were very few Black people who had, who were legally able to vote, but the majority of the ones who could vote lived in Seneca Village. So, you know, we do that and we separate like you tell us to do, but you want us broke and struggling. So all that to say, when Black people separate or when other communities of color separate and have our own towns and things like that, because... We just want to have peace because when white people got together to literally destroy towns' lives and everything in between, they assumed that when we got together, that's exactly what we were trying to do as well, not live peacefully. And so when you look at white people today, is this something that is automatically coming in their mind? No, But there are so many instances of Black people who are together just being and is automatically interrupted by a white person who's like, y'all are doing too much. It's too loud. What are you doing here? Or if it's not interrupted by a white person, it's interrupted by someone who has called the police because they believe that groups of Black people together can are up to absolutely no good. When is the complete opposite of that? We're just in the midst of Black joy. And unfortunately, Black joy to this day is still completely policed. So the separation of Black people and the separation of white people historically and still today is for two different reasons. You've got white flight and these other suburban neighborhoods that were created because Black people were getting a little bit of money and starting to move into middle-class neighborhoods. And they said, absolutely not. And literally gated themselves away. So black people could not be near them. Whereas black people were like, I'm doing better for myself. I just want to move into a safe neighborhood. I'm not coming to hurt you. And just so you know, my black son is not looking at your little white daughter either. So you don't have to worry about some little Mandingo baby that you think is coming. Like, we're not coming for you just because y'all are forever coming for us. Yes, it can be that innocent as we're just getting together because we haven't seen each other in a minute. Yeah, I mean, textbook racial gaslighting, right? Like, it's it's uh, what, it, even if it's subliminal or unconscious or whatever, the the fear of black people gathering together and that's what that's what you should examine right like if you're a white person and like for some reason it makes you uncomfortable that you see um you know a line between where black people are and white people are instead of um thinking the black people are up to no good whatever that means in your head explore why you're afraid of that because you might be afraid that they're gonna do what white people have done to black people and again i i hate I mean, it's obviously going to happen in an episode about <laughs> segregation, but I hate that we have to keep saying white and black, but it's important to note and remember the whole reason we're using the words white and black is white people's fault. Like we've created 
the construct of race. And so it's, it's so messy and um, yeah, upsetting to say the least. I would absolutely agree. It is messy. It is upsetting. And that's history for you. It is, it is messy and it is upsetting, but it doesn't make it any less so by not acknowledging it. Yeah, it's got to be acknowledged. And for anyone who like wants to be in denial about the history, I'll I'll read a rather horrifying quote. Um, you know, American slaveholders they used Christian rhetoric to justify uh, all these abhorrent practices. Um, and the this is a lengthy quote from uh, Bishop Stephen Elliott of Georgia, my home state. Um, he said that critics of slavery, you know, abolitionists, should quote consider whether by their uh, interference with this institution, meaning slavery, they may not be checking and impeding a work which is manifestly providential. For nearly a hundred years, the English and American churches have been striving to civilize and Christianize Western Africa. And with what result? Around Sierra Leone and in the neighborhood of Cape Palmas, a few natives have been made Christians, and some nations have been partially civilized. But what a small number in comparison <clears throat> with the thousands, nay, I say millions, who have learned the way to heaven and who have been made to know their Savior through the means of African slavery. At this very moment, there are from three to four million Africans educating for earth and for heaven in the so vilified southern states, learning the very best lessons for a semi-barbarous people lessons of self-control of obedience of perseverance of adaptation to of means to ends learning above all where their weakness lies and how they may acquire strength for the battle of life these considerations satisfy me with their condition and assure me that it is the best relation they can for the present be made to occupy end quote and in the same era the bible was used to justify slavery and even when I was growing up, I would hear rhetoric around how slavery wasn't a sin. It was just the kidnapping and abuse, whatever that means, uh, denying the fact that slavery is necessarily a violation of another person's autonomy. And in, in light of this uh, horrible era's approach, Frederick Douglass said, quote, I love the pure, peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. So, Janae, big question. Answer it however you want. Um, do you think American Christianity is Christianity at all, or is it something different? Oh, this is... <laughs> this is a heart question to answer. I would say that American Christianity, like so many things, is so multifaceted. And just by the use of American, it's cultural. And then you have to break down American as well, because you've got you've got American Christianity as your umbrella. Then you have to break down. So, OK, so what does it look like for black Christians? What does it look like for dominant culture Christians? What does it look like for a Filipino Christian? And like so Christianity 
looks so different around cultural lines. It looks so different. But when we look at these quotes, what Frederick Douglass is talking about is that white evangelical, white supremacist Christianity. And that Christianity is not something that I subscribe to, ascribe to, and want to be a part of. But unfortunately, it it taints the faith of so many people, myself included, and you as well. I don't know that there is that there is a part of Christianity that white supremacy has not touched. And so I do believe that the old time religion, the the Bible, the one that I follow, the one that I look at, the one that leads and guides my life and American Christianity. No, I don't believe that they're the same thing. Is there overlap? I mean, obviously, yes, because, you know, cherry picking happens because that's what American Christianity is, is is a cherry picking and distortion of the words of my Lord and Savior. So, no, they're they're not the same thing. There's a huge difference between the two because scripture tells us where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But in American Christianity, there is so much bondage. And I I think about the deconstruction conversation that's happening and that people are literally chewing the meat and spitting out the bones chewing the meat of Christianity and spitting out the bones of American Christianity so they can have something that is as pure as it can be in our impurity. Well said. Um, You know, I think you're right. I think there's, there's a craving, you know, I don't even consider myself Christian anymore, but there, but, but there's craving both in and outside of Christianity to, um to to make it better because <laughs> like what it has been is uh i mean unbiblical is like the nicest thing you can say about it um it's been evil um you know i i love that frederick douglas quote um because i think it really does define um where you know i i like i like christianity but not whatever this is um and uh but um yeah finding those lines can be rather hard um for white people i know white people have it so hard always sticking up for them um but um where you know let's say someone is in a white evangelical context is starting kind of some of this deconstruction like um you know they're they're gonna have their own uh culture they have to face to some extent um i get i'm kind of wondering like do they just need to restart from the beginning? Is there anywhere they can go or do they hold on to some of it? Because you're right, there is some overlap and and most of the overlap is some of the language used. Um, But some of that language 
contains a lot of microaggressions and horrible things in it. So I don't know. Do you have any advice for someone who's trying to be a Christian but wants to reject their white evangelicalism? Yeah, I think that one, you need to come to the realization that your life has been affected by it. Because you cannot begin to make a change without acknowledging the issue first. First, acknowledge that your life has been touched by white supremacy. It is being touched by white supremacy. That's the first thing that you need to do. And then get into your Bible and read it for yourself. And not just that, something that I know annoyed you and me when we were in classes together, when we looked at the bibliography and it was the same old white man saying the same old white manish things. But Timothy when- Keller, you can say it. <laughs> <laughs> so many people. So many people. I can't even remember half their names, but yes, he was one of them. John the yeah. Pipes Piper, him. Uh, Mr. But- Pipes, yep. Oh, the Pipes. <laughs> but read read books by people who don't look like you. And that includes your gender as well. Read books by Black women, Hispanic women, Middle Eastern women. Read books by Black men. Read books by white people who have taken the opportunity to sit at the feet of non-white Christians and who have, because they're out there, white people who have been and are on the same journey that you are embarking on because they've already and currently are doing the work of reading extensively. Get on Twitter and look for them and read what they've read. Go on different websites. You can, I mean, there's there's The Witness, there's Truth's Table. Look at, listen to those podcasts where you have or the Jude 13, is it Jude 3, Jude 13? One of those, but the Jude Project where it is primarily Black Christians and listen to what they have to say. Because historically, when, when POC When we read scripture and when white folks read scripture, we come to two completely different conclusions because we do not have a shared history. And I've said this so many times and I'm referencing the Lament podcast episode because it's the most, it's the freshest in my mind. Historically, when my people read scripture, they saw themselves as the Israelites who needed to be saved. And when white people read scripture, they saw themselves as people needing to be saved as well, which spiritually, yes, it was true, but they automatically saw themselves like, oh, I need God to save me. I need God to save me. Like, yes, you need God to save you, but then you also need to see yourself as the perpetrator of hurt, harm, and danger, and not the victim in this situation. So that's that's the advice that I would give someone who is beginning their journey of deconstruction and 
you know, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Listen to people who do not look like you because it will open your eyes in ways that you never thought that they could be open. Great advice. Yeah, go do that and to to weed out the the baby water and then come to me if you still want to throw out the baby. But um <laughs> but the you know, I I still I admire people who who uh are people of faith who can disentangle all of that because um I have not been able to. To me it's all one and the same thing, but I think if you are able to split those hairs and make those splices, faith can be a very good thing for people. Um but that's for each individual to decide for themselves. And I, I think you're right. I think reading the Bible without um, sort of the cultural lens you grew up with um, and trying on some different lenses is a very important thing that people need to do. Um, during the civil rights era, uh, Martin Luther King and, and others um, convinced the black community and white liberals that integration was necessary for larger society. Um, but that that push for integration uh, hasn't really made it into churches. Why, why do you think that is? Oh, integration. Well, before I get to churches, something that we have to look at and acknowledge is that, again, hindsight being twenty twenty, that integration really didn't do a lot for Black people because to those in the civil rights movement integration meant pulling black people out of black spaces and putting them into white spaces which was in a lot of ways very hurtful to the black community because it took away a lot of safety and forcing me to be in a space that you know didn't want me as opposed to the other way around like why not have your white children come to predominantly black schools and it still had the inherent belief that bringing you into white spaces will be better for you and will civilize you whereas that's not what we were asking for we were asking for the exact same opportunities i shouldn't have to come to you to get the same things afforded to me so first let's Let's get that out there. And then when it comes to churches, I'm always going to have to go back to safety. Because when, for me in my experience, when I have been in white churches, I was immediately aware of the white gaze, the dreaded white gaze. And I was, for lack of a better word, I was very much, and still am, the last time I was in a predominantly white church, very much aggressively welcomed. Like, hello, how are oh, you? Oh, gosh. Who I've just, so many memories just like popped yes. in my head that are so I know, crazy. I know. You remember? You remember? So, yes, just yeah. the aggressive welcoming. And it's... I don't even like sports. This still has not changed about me from Bible college, but it's it's very much reminiscent of when that basketball player is on his own and there are <laughs> there are members of the opposing team all around. And that's how I feel the majority of the time when I go into a white church that I am 
that I have the ball and everyone's around me. And even if I take it out of the church, I was I was at this Easter dinner, this post-church Easter dinner. And I did not know that I was going to be the only Black person there. Had I known ahead of time, I would not have gone because everyone was trying to figure out who I was in relation to the host. How did I get here? What, how do you know them? I don't, we don't know you. It's clear that you know them, but how do you know them, if that makes sense? And when you look at integration of churches, as I said, going back to safety, I am not questioned no matter what Black church I walk into. I am not questioned. I could work walk into a Black church here in Dallas, which I have done. And there's this sigh of relief that I let out because I know that I'm going to be okay. And that aside from the usual, like, oh, we know this person, like you, who's your friend that you brought? Just the general curiosity. And thank you so much for coming. We're so glad to have you. Where are you from? And there's a there's a genuine curiosity there. Whereas where I'm, when I'm in white spaces, there's an accusatory questioning there of who are you? How do you know this person? How long have y'all known each other? That, that type of thing. And when we look at church integration, a lot of that is there where you don't feel as free in white spaces. And then also for Black people, it is very rare that you are in a homogenous space outside of Sundays and special events and things like that. And so I need a break from white people. Y'all in general are exhausted and I need a break and I have to be around y'all every day. And I have to watch myself and I have to constantly figure out who is friend or foe and and going full ninja on people who are coming for my hair, especially now that I'm natural and asking me questions. And then when you look at the events of the world that's going on right now with protests, especially over the summer with protests and things like that. And if you're the only black person in space or if you're one of many black people in the space, then it's having to deal with work times 10 because of everything that's going on in the news. And then people have questions and then they want to ask you things. And so I can't even go on and on and on and on and on about just what it is to be me, a dark-skinned Black woman with natural hair in a predominantly white space. And I need a break. And that is where the safety of homogenous spaces come in. And you have to, you have to look at, and I understand that integration is necessary and people want to integrate 
But then you have to you have to consider who is asking for or demanding the integration. And not only that, but what is their definition of integration? Because from a white person's perspective, the integration usually involves me coming into your space and never you coming into my space. Whereas Black integration is come here, do life with me. Don't try to save me. Don't try to look around and say, oh, this neighborhood, you know, depending on where it is, but not trying to fix things. Can you just be with me? And that's, I would say that's, that's what integration That's the issue with integration because who's demanding it, who's asking for it, and what is their definition of integration? Because how they define integration and how Black, Indigenous, people of color define integration are two completely different things. Uh, I'll edit this out if you don't want to talk about it, but can we talk about the Black Chapel at Moody? Sure. We can go right, there. So- you you lead it and I will jump in. <laughs> okay. I'll just share my perspective. This is uh, this is just the cringiest of cringy stories to me personally, but there was uh the the context leading up to this was a professor at the college we went to, not the not the campus we went to, but the main campus of the college we went to tweeted out something racially insensitive. And this divided the school into this, not, it didn't divide the school. It just caused controversy um, between uh, idiots and the rest. Um, And the school, the campus we went to, I guess, following some of those quote unquote conversations that were uh, mostly forums with mostly white professors, they're, they're, they gave, um, they had a cha- do, you, do you remember what they actually called the chapel? I don't think they just straight up called it Black Chapel. Um, the Diversity Chapel, where it was like... Oh no, they said not, Diversity. Was it that one, where it was like the panel yeah. of Black students, and then like it was, uh, it was some of our um, Nepalese students who were doing worship as right. well. Was that the one? Oh, oh my God. gosh! <laughs> well, and it, it felt so forced, so inorganic, and uh, you know, uh, I talked to a, that, that. What there were six black uh, students at the time, something like that. I talked to a, a handful, and like pretty much you, uh, more than one um, black gal told me that that experience felt like uh, they were being watched like they were at the zoo. Um, and uh, yeah, that just is an example of how to do integration bad. Do you, do you have anything to add to that? I have so much to add to it, but I also know that we are on a limited time. So let me say this as succinctly as possible. That chapel Okay, Jesus be offense, Black Jesus. Okay, that chapel. What I can say is that some of the professors who are allies tried. I can say that the ally professors tried. That's the only good thing I'm going to say about that. 
Now, everything else, it was so forced. And the students of color, we, even though it was forced, we tried to savage it as best we could. And then you can also tell how harmful it was because we didn't lead it. Even though our faces were front and center, we did not lead it. We did not plan it and we didn't even ask for it. That's the thing. We did not ask for that chapel. And when we go back to integration and it is not POC led, then that's what you get. Something that is harmful, not to white people, but harmful to the black and brown people of color that you have for display. Because it was, oh, look how unified we are. We're going to let our students who are from Nepal lead worship. We're going to have our black students do a panel on what it's like to be them. And then we're going to do this. Like, oh. Well, nothing about that screams integration. That that screams, uh, look, we have some black people at our school. And it also, is the, the optics of having... Um, you know, people of color on stage and a bunch of white, you know, 500 plus white people staring at them. I mean, that's not, that's very counterproductive to, I, I agree with you. I think there was a, a, a genuineness to, to a lot of the intention, um, but the execution just, and the only reason I want to bring that up, I don't want to just tear down, you know, the past or rehash it, but like that, I feel like applies so largely when we're talking about integration is can we get we we should get black people more involved but not give them any power like it's like don't you know integration is not usually up to black people (laughs) like it's not usually the 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 mic the reins the power is not given to black leadership it's like how can we um you know put some people somewhere where it looks good and that is that's horrifying and is way counterproductive and does way more damage than it helps Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, of course, that situation doesn't scream integration to you or me, but look at who it screams integration to. That's what we always have to, that's what we always have to ask ourselves when someone uses words like integration and, and well, this is what it was like for me and certain buzz words like that, we always have to question to whom, to who, because is it integration to you as a white person or is it, or would I say the same thing as a black person? And not just that, but to a black person who probably vehemently disagrees with you because you can find a black person to agree with you. You can, they're out there. It's not hard to find black people who will espouse your views. It's not hard to find the minority among the majority, but you must ask yourselves, who does this serve in the end? And if it's just you, then it's an issue. Mm, well put um yeah and and that situation i know it only bred like um 
you know, because it was done the way it was done, it just all it really did was divide white people about how they think about black people. Like that's and that's like, again, <laughs> not the point. Like it, it was so it was so white centric from top to bottom um, and just so catered to white supremacist ideology. But uh, we'll give white people a break really quick. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a question that I am not able to answer um based on my life experience um and based on you know probably uh the color of my skin i probably shouldn't talk about this too much for optical reasons but um does black evangelicalism have any problems that are related to white supremacy just within itself oh lord i've never even heard the term black evangelicalism before that's new that was not on my 2021 bingo card but here we go <laughs> i don't know if it exists i just uh I, it certainly talked about like it does you know i would not say in general as a whole that black evangelicalism exists and and as i say this my my face is is so distorted right now because i don't I don't even, those two words don't even go together at all. It just, it does not give me the warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside. And it, you know, just the way that I am knitting my brows so hard, the <laughs> words just sound so oozy. And yeah, does it exist? I'll have to answer it in this way. Are there Black people who uphold white evangelicalism and white supremacy? Yes, absolutely. So in that way, does Black evangelicalism exist? Yes. However, when you look at the Black church as a whole, it's like, it's like that there's this town that is, you know, very white evangelicalism. We're going to call it Wonder Bread. So there's this Wonder Bread town. <laughs> I like this already. Keep going. Thank you. Off the top of my head. So you got this Wonder Bread town. And then on the outskirts of the town, you've got seasoning. And because the people of seasoning have to interact with the folks of the Wonder Bread town, there's obviously going to be things that we take back with us. But because we're on the outskirts and we don't interact with that town in such a way that greatly affects our lives so much so that we change who we are as a core, we're, we're still not necessarily untouched or unaffected, but still holding on to the core of our being and who we are, if that makes sense. And that's what the Black church pretty much has been over these last, I don't know how many generations. We have been on the outskirts and We've lived our lives just as people, white churches have lived their lives. But we have so many cultural artifacts that have 
allowed us to remain inherently Black and keep so much of who we are that we as a people had our literal cultures and names ripped from us and then came and built a new culture out of pretty much nothing. And with that new culture, we took it with us and created this unique people. And that is where we differ, you know? Because we've been on the outskirts and no one really wanted to be a part of us, we flourished and created this beautiful Black American culture out of literally nothing, holding on to the little bits of our identity that we couldn't explain, you know? So Black evangelicalism, does it exist? Yeah, for Black people who are upholding white supremacy, then yeah. But as a whole, I would say no, it doesn't because we have remained our own thing on the outskirts of of majority culture. So maybe I'll frame I th- that was really beautifully put. I did I, at the beginning of the analogy, I was laughing at you choosing Wonder Bread and seasonings. I was glad I was muted. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe another way to phrase that thing that you're talking about is if you see maybe a toxic viewpoint in uh, not you white people, but if, if a person were to see um, like uh a problematic ideology within a black church is it is it worth asking does this come from white evangelicalism absolutely it is worth asking and yes we do have to question it and that's true of any church you always if it is not healthy if it is not of the lord if that is not biblical then you got to question it you got to root it out and you have to figure out where that came from. And the same goes for Black churches. And especially when it comes to gender in the Black church and for more mm, conservative Black churches, you have to, there's so many Black Christians now who are questioning, okay, is this biblical? Is this cultural? And I don't know if that's necessarily different than what white majority churches, what's happening in white majority churches that we are asking, is this biblical? Is it correct? Where are we getting this from? Is it cultural? And cultural does not necessarily mean biblical. But then On top of that, if it is something that is so harmful and unhealthy and it is based on gender, race, color, then that's when you have to bring in white supremacy and say and ask, has white supremacy affected us? And is it affecting this thing in particular? Awesome. Um... You know, a problem I run into, though, when I critique white evangelicals is that people um, 
but when I, you know, because a lot of times I'll just say it like that, white evangelicals, um, is that people are, people think that I'm somehow implying that white people are inherently evil or like being racist towards white skin or something and that I'm perpetuating racism by bringing it up. And the fragility here is obviously frustrating. Um, but to give some credence to it, fixating on race or just angering people is not usually the best path forward. So how do we acknowledge racial problems without making it worse by talking about it? Well, first of all, there is absolutely no way to acknowledge race in a way that will make somebody comfortable. Let's just throw that out the window right now because Great it does point. not exist. The limit does not exist. Hashtag me, girls. It will never happen. It will never happen. Okay. It, that's that's something that annoys me to know. And like, you're being divisive by talking about racism. Like, I'm being divisive by telling you about the Black maternal health rates like that are absolutely true. I'm being divisive by telling you that me no longer having natural hair is the direct reason why I was not offered a job that I was overqualified for. That's that's being divisive. So me telling you my lived experience so that you can properly empathize with me and hopefully become an ally and call out white supremacy is divisive. Got it. So let's say if I were married, so you mean to tell me that me telling you what is an issue in our marriage is making our marriage an issue? Is that what we're saying? Because people wouldn't say it that way. Like for me and my best friend, Christian, I got a bunch of really good friends, but let's say I'm talking to Christian and I said, hey, this is really, it really hurt me when you said this. Well, you're being so divisive right now. Like it's hurting your feelings. It's hurting my feelings that you're telling me this. No, that doesn't work in any other situation. So why do we apply it to race? So just know that, and in fact, I lost a friend over this and I'm not mad about it at all. I lost a friend over this. I told her because she was, about, she said that she was ready to enter the journey of becoming an ally. And I told her, I said, Hey, you're going to lose friends. And she was like, No, I cannot do anything that will cause me to lose friends. And I said, Yes, you can, because you are about to hold up a mirror to someone else and show them something that they do not want to acknowledge that is true about them. Or don't even want to acknowledge the possibility that it could be true about them. And if you take race out of it, who wants that? Who wants a mirror held up to them and to see a reflection that is ugly? Nobody wants to see that. And so our immediate response is to say no and get defensive and get angry and accuse you of being divisive and to gaslight. That's the immediate response. Of course, we're human. Who wants that? So no, not at all. You are not going to make people happy when you talk about race. You are not going to make white people happy about it initially because they're centuries old things that must be acknowledged. And that is hard. It is hard. It's not easy to see things about yourself, 
about your family, about your history, about your genealogy that is beautiful to you, but ugly to me. It's, it's yeah. hard. There's nothing easy about that. It, it is hard. And, and two things here. One, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the, the guy who gets caught cheating and then starts crying, you know, like, it, it's like, why are you crying? Like, why? <laughs> like, not that, you know, it can't be an emotional time in life or something, but it, it kind of like trying to turn it back like you're a victim because you were just caught being a perpetrator. Um, that's kind of what it sounds like. But but a good example of what you were just talking about Um you know, I used to, you know, I hate to expose myself like this, but I think it's necessary. I grew up growing up in the South, used to like um, the Confederate flag. I thought it was cool because the way I was conditioned to understand it was it was a sign of rebellion and Southern pride. Um, it, had, it, it was not taught to me as a, you know, monument to slavery or anything like that. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll slip a little praise in here. I had complicated feelings about that flag for longer than I wish to admit. Um, you know, it, it, it took a minute for me to be like, this flag is disgusting. You know, it wasn't overnight. It, it was an adult. You know, I was an adult before it happened. Um, but I'll give my dad some credit here, who's, who's, who is a white evangelical. Um, you know, I, I was talking to him on the phone when um, people were starting to take flags off of, um, you know, capital, um, Confederate flags off of Capitol buildings. And my dad, growing up, there was a Confederate flag um, license plate on the front of his truck. Um, and I was talking to him about it, and he's like, yeah, I took it off. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. He's like, I've, you know, my whole life never wanted to hurt or offend anyone. He's like, it meant something different to me, but I understand that it means something different by having it on my truck, so I took it off. And I gave him kudos, and it really helped me to go, wow, someone as stubborn and old as my dad can can do this. I ought to be able to stop having complicated feelings. And that was years ago. I'm way beyond that now. But I share that to say, like, yeah, when you're confronted with this, you know, the, the knee jerk is to be defensive and to say, um, well, I never had slaves. I would never have slaves. My parents didn't have slaves. And, you know, I, if I my dad's side was poor, probably never owned slaves, even if my mom's side did. Um, you know, there, there's all these kind of, uh, walls that are built up, but you got to take down those walls. And yes, I a hundred percent agree. You can't talk about race without getting uncomfortable because the idea that we've constructed this idea of race is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable thing we've done to ourselves here culturally, but we did it. It's happened. It's reality. And we, we have to talk about it. Um, I don't know if there's a way to talk about it without, um, but but being uncomfortable is not bad. But I, is there is there ever a time where talking about race can be a bad idea? Well, let me let me circle back. One for you, John. Never be afraid to admit how long it took you to come to a place like a realization, especially when it comes to the Confederate flag, because that's real. Like John, that was your entire life. Fully acknowledge that you're not there anymore. Okay, so yeah. And then Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, fully acknowledge that. Like if this is something that has been a part of your entire life and then it takes you a minute to come out of it. I mean, it's not like someone's going to tell you the history of the Confederate flag and then you say, "Oh, that's bad. Let me not let me not have pride in that anymore." Who does that? Nobody does that, okay? I 
really honestly do not know anyone who has had a Saul to Paul conversion immediately once their eyes have been opened to something. It is this process. So that first. Second, is there is there a time when you should not discuss it or mm, now how I answer this question is going to be it's going to be different because one this country has been marked by racism it is in the soil of the ground it is in the buildings the historical buildings it is in everything it has been marked by it However, I would have to say that the only time you should not have that conversation about race is when you are in a situation where it will do more harm to you to talk about it. Now, how do I mean that? For me, something in in the latest episode that I that I released is it was called um allyship part two and I recorded with one of my black female friends and I said that I decline every invitation from a white person who messages me to say hey can we go out to coffee so I can quote pick your brain no we cannot go out to coffee gross gross red flag (laughs) yes so many red flags because I have been to enough coffee dates where I came out harmed and the other person didn't because it wasn't a coffee date to listen to acknowledge to finally hear it was a well that's not true and I came out harmed for it so when it comes to not talking about race and when there's 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 a time for everything and there's a time to have those conversations and there's a time not to have those conversations And there's people that you need to have those conversations with and people that you should not have those conversations with. If it's you, John, oh yeah, I'm absolutely ready, willing, and able to have those conversations. But if it's someone else who is still holding to these beliefs that historically do not make any sense and can be debunked with just a simple Google search, no. We're not about to have that conversation because I need to be in a place where I protect my peace. So that's that's what it looks like when you decide whether or not to talk about race, because it's fine to talk about it. But you have to determine who are you talking to? Are you willing to sacrifice your peace. For some people, I am willing to sacrifice my peace because for me, what is going to involve is me withdrawing and I have to recover because it takes out, it takes from me to have the conversation. But if I'm having that conversation with a life-giving person, does is their energy still taken from me? Yes. But not to the point where physically I need to lay down and I need to take a nap because it is so depleted me. And then there are some people where I know that this will be life taking and I am not willing to give up any part of myself 
to have a conversation with you. But then I must also think about that sacrifice. And there's sometimes some moments where I do feel like, yes, I need to make this sacrifice. And then there's some moments where I'm like, no, not going to happen. My peace is important. So yeah, I'm all for talking about race, but we need to reframe it and look at who are you talking to and acknowledging what it's going to take from you to have that conversation and are you willing to do it? And if you're not willing to, it's not bad. It's not bad. It is not bad to consider the effects physically, emotionally, mentally that it will have on you to have that conversation. But sometimes, no, I don't want to make the sacrifice. And sometimes, yes, I do feel compelled to make the sacrifice, but it's situational. It's moment by moment. It sounds like a super healthy boundary um, for, for, for you to have. Um, and that boundary probably applies a little bit to white allies as well. Um, I do try to encourage my uh, fellow white friends who get tired about talking about this stuff. I'm like, you have no idea. Like, buck up a little, you know. <laughs> um, like, it, this is something you get to turn on and off. So, uh, you know, when an opportunity comes to turn on and talk about this stuff, I, I think you should take it. Um if you if you're if you're a white ally personally and and I actually I shrug away from the word ally be, personally just because I'm like no it's just being a good person it doesn't need a label like <laughs> it's it's just acknowledging reality uh you don't get a badge for it in my opinion um but I uh, you know I wasn't planning on talking about this but this might be a nice little little thing to add because um I don't have race uh data on my audience and don't really care to have race data on my audience but i would assume it's a good large majority white um if you have a black friend and you have a question um and this happens you know i i've done this with you before where i've had like a a question let's let's talk about how you should frame that um there's there's a couple different things one you should probably feel out what that person is doing that day you know like it should never be like this automatic like Oh, I have a black question. Let me go talk to my black friend. Um, you should probably just say hi and like be a friend to them first and check in with them, see how they're doing. Uh, second, is the question a question where you're looking for an answer or permission or something like that? Or is it an honest, you need their opinion? So instead of having an agenda when you ask the question, it probably needs to be... Um, like you probably need to examine what you're really asking for. Are you asking for the black card pass or are you genuinely curious what your black friend thinks? And then thirdly, give as many outs as you possibly can. Um, like say, if you're not willing to talk about this right now, I understand. Or if I need to frame my question different, please let me know. In my experience with um, different people of color friends with, or, or different, uh, you know, sexual orientation or different gender friends, when you frame the question in such a way where you're you can express that you're genuinely asking for their opinion and their advice and you're coming to their feet and not looking for something you're in the clear you don't have anything to fear there but if you're just coming for a for a quick uh you know pass on whatever idea idea you want to keep going 
uh, that's that's not healthy. Did I miss anything there, Janae? Is there is there something I'm I'm wrong about there? No, I think you're good, and I think also you you have to be very aware of your relationship with this person because I've had so many white people who will say, "Yeah, Janae's my best friend," and I think to myself, "We are." We were <laughs> we were acquaintances at best. So I had this one white chick at this former job who said, you know, me and Janae, we're best friends. And I'm thinking, girl, I don't even know your middle name. I didn't even know that the name that you told us was actually your middle name. We have never Yikes. hung out outside of work. We only see each other at work. And we work for two completely different companies. I did not know we were best friends. So one, you need to be extremely aware of who you are in their life and who they are in your life. Because if you have this idea of what your friendship is, and then your black friend, quotation marks, is looking at you like, huh? Then you need to... (laughs) You need to have a define the relationship. You need to have a DTR with this person because DTRs are not just Mm. reserved for romantic relationships. You need to have a DTR with the person that you say is my black friend. And then you just have one. That's suspicious. But yes, yeah, <laughs> that so. is really bad. If you only have one, then uh, then you might need to uh, read some books or get out of the conversation yes, a little bit for you your need own to good. Read some books. But I do have some friends from Bible college who have remained extremely close to me who will say, hey, I have this question for you. And they do give me that out. They say, hey, if you don't want to answer this question, it's totally fine. And they'll preface like, tell me exactly what is this question about? You don't have to answer it. And I'll say, oh, yeah, I can answer this for you. And because of the nature of our relationship, I'll also say, hey, even though I don't know everything about this, here's some things that I've read. And here's some people that I follow on Twitter, Instagram, who have written on it and have a podcast on it that, you know, I, as their friend, I want to give them the information that they need. That's what I want to do because they've come to me in such a way where it's like, you know, I I don't want you to think that you're the black friend that I come to. It's just, here's this question. And I really wanted your opinion on it specifically because I, I have a friend who she approached me. She was like, I wanted your opinion because I trust you. And I know that when I ask you a question, you will truth tell. You will not you're not going to give me any candy coated answers. You are going to give me the exact truth, whether I want to hear it or not. And that's usually what I get from white friends who ask me questions because they know that's exactly what they're going to get from me. They're not going to get answers that they necessarily want, but they're going to get what they need when they ask me those questions. And it's the way that it's two things. It's our relationship that we had prior to them asking me the question. Because if we're friends, then you can ask me anything that you want to. That's what a true friendship is. I can ask you the hard things. That's that's what we do. I ask you hard questions. You ask me hard questions. And our relationship is deeper for it. So there, there shouldn't be an issue there. But then if you also know that this is a sensitive subject, even though we're friends, it's still good to say, hey, I know we're friends and I know you said that I could ask you anything, but I also know that life is a little bit hard right now, emotionally or any other way. So like, feel free to answer this 
at your leisure or don't even answer it at all. Just, I just want to throw that out there. And like, no matter what, I love you. And no matter what you say, this friendship is still good. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I do have, uh, you know, people I can ask certain questions, but, uh, and I do dip based on the type of questions they are. Um, but I, I go to you every now and then because yeah, like you said, you got that truth teller. And I also just like talking to you. Um, <laughs> like, frankly, I enjoy your opinions. So, um, I guess that's a, that's a healthy kind of integration, huh? How you and I talk. Um, do you, do you think American Christianity or we can even flip that around a little bit, Christianity in America will ever be fully integrated? Does it have a shot at any kind of healthy kind of integration? Well, I am one of those people that I like to never say never. But in this situation, no, it ain't happening. No, it's not going to happen. I was I was drinking water on mute and almost did a spit take. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. My goodness. Well, it's uh, like, I don't I don't think that it's going to happen because America has yet to acknowledge its most atrocious sins. It has yet to acknowledge the intentional, the intentional genocide against the original inhabitants of this land, my Native American brothers and sisters. If we can't even get to that place where we acknowledge the atrocities done to the inhabitants of this land. We can't even get to slavery. We can't even get to Jim Crow. We can't even get to Japanese internment camps. We can't even get to the ridiculous policing and racially motivated carrying things that are happening right now. If we can't even get to the very basics of how America became America, then how in the world are we going to integrate? We can't even integrate our learning. We still have people going back and forth over critical race theory and they can't even define what it is. We have people that do not want their children to be made to feel guilty for history and want to shield their children from things that have literally happened and are happening. And we're talking about integration? Please, we haven't even made it past the first stage, which, which is acknowledgement. We we can't even talk about, like, integration is like step 25. We are at level zero at best. Like, this is Chernobyl up in here. Yeah. I unfortunately agree with you um, that if there's any path forward, um, it's uh, we got to take a few steps back and start it. Not, I mean, you could even take it back before America, like what was happening in in, in European countries, and it, 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 and then you can go all the way back to Christendom. So you, you keep you keep pulling that thread, and then it goes back to the root, um, which you know is is part of my problem with Christianity as a whole. Um, you know, I, my my hot take. I personally believe that uh, cult leaders, which is what I call white evangelical pastors, um, cult leaders within white evangelicalism, uh, want to keep people segregated. They want to not just by race, but by gender orientation, uh, what they believe about baptism, how they talk, how they dress, where they work, and by a million other things. They love categorizing and separating people into these um, fake binaries. 
um, because a more monolithic people group is easier to control. Um, is that hot take? Is that opinion fair? A fair accusation, or am I am I putting my conspiracy hat on? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Before I answer this question, I will say that I have been watching Batman, the animated series from 1992 on HBO Max, and the character Two-Face has come in, and there's a reason for this. And so I'm looking at, so I'm looking at your, your statement, kind of like at that Two-Face character where it's like the distorted side and then the beautiful side that is the Two-Face character. And I think that's I think that's how we look at your statement because is some of it true? Absolutely. Some of it is definitely true that when people remain separated, then they remain at odds. But then it leads me back to what I said earlier. Who is doing the separating? For what purpose is this? is this separation. Because if it is from a white supremacist standpoint, then absolutely, your statement is absolutely correct. 100% correct. If is white supremacists who are leading the charge for separation. But again, when you look at communities of color who are separated, it's not like we're separated because I think we're better because we think we're better. It's not that at all. It's a recharging <laughs> separation to come back in and live life. It's not a separation whereas how'd your kids, how'd your wife? Let me close all these doors. Let me flee to this neighborhood so I will never encounter anyone from whiteness. It's not that. It is not that at all. We must always look at the intentions. And like I said earlier, it's when white people separate it is because we think that we're better. You must never mix. You must never mingle. When black people separate it, it's not like we were beginning the separation. We, we were forced to because we weren't allowed in. Like we were never offered a seat at the table. So what were we supposed to do? Starve? No, we made our own table and that was it. Whereas, but our table is open to anyone. Whereas the white table is only open to those who are willing to uphold white supremacy. And unfortunately you have many outliers from POC communities who do that, who will be at that table. But it's not a table that PLC in general are willing to sit at because we're not allowed to sit at it because there is no integration at that table unless you uphold these views that are for separation. I cannot put it any better than you just did. Well done. Um, Janae, I'm so glad you came back. This conversation was uh honestly just so thorough and so good um and i know it's it's it can be traumatizing not just for uh for us but for the listener um so thank you for sticking around and sticking through for this tough stuff um it's important stuff i i know it's tough but we got to keep the conversation going we can't just 
stop talking because we're exhausted. Um, so thank you, Janae, for for making the sacrifice and coming on. Go ahead and plug your uh, podcast one more time. Yes, yes, yes. So my podcast is called Bad Seminarians. I am one half of Bad Seminarians. The other one is my best friend, Christian Williams. Take a listen to us. We are Black female Christians, and we look at culture. We look at Christianity, and we just we discuss things from our perspective as black females who are also seminary trained. Yeah. Highly recommend. Uh, I need to catch up on the new season, um, but highly recommend. It's a good time. It's a great podcast. Thanks again, Janae. Uh, love you to death. Would love to have you back on at some point. Um, and thank you listener for stopping by. I'll talk to you all soon. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.